This reading comes from Acts chapter 6. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Nate Egger. Um, I'm an elder here at MacAff, um, even though I just got out of high school. And <laughs> no, um, and I'm just privileged to be here today. It's always exciting to to teach on the Word of God. It's a privilege. Um, thank you guys for coming. Just want to start off in prayer before we jump in. So if you could all bow your heads with me. Holy Spirit, we, we long for you to be present in our lives the way we, that we see you so evident in the lives of the early church, Lord. We pray, Lord, we, we thank you that you are living in us as believers, Lord. We pray that, yeah, that you would continue to mold our hearts into, into hearts that are ones of flesh, Lord, that desire the things you desire, Lord. Lord, that chase after you, Lord, that, that delight in you as the choicest of food, Lord. Lord, and hunger and thirst after you more than anything else, Lord. That is our prayer. And Lord, we pray that you would be with us here today, Lord, that you would be speaking through your word, Lord, and through, yeah, through my halting explanation of it. Lord, yeah, we just thank you for just all that you've given us. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you, would you be with us today? Amen. Um, so, so we're going through Acts oh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 7 today. Um, and it's, kinda, it's an interesting passage um, entitled this talk, Drama in the Early Church. Um, because this is really the first time I think that we see some kind of inner drama in the church, um, seeing lots of outside oppression, but this is the first time where we get a peek at um, some, of the, some of the workings of the church itself. Um, before we get into this, um, I think we need to answer a few questions. Before we jump to, well, what does this passage mean for our lives today? Um, we kind of need to answer a few ground questions, and these have been answered before if you've been with us in Acts, but I just want to kind of remind us of them. Um, the first question, whenever you're in a book of scripture, reading through it, and you want to start thinking about what a passage means for you, 
Um, was what, what is the purpose of the book? What was the author trying to get across? And when it comes to Acts, um, Acts is a story about growth and movement. It's a story about how this tiny group of Jewish believers in Jerusalem, how that group you know, grew and multiplied outside of the Jerusalem borders and eventually made it to Rome, which in the New Testament kind of typifies the world, the known world at that time. So how did it become a Gentile-predominated reality with thousands, hundreds of thousands of people from this small Jewish group? Um, and Luke is the writer of this. He's explaining this to a Greek official named Theophilus. And so he's writing this story, and he's writing about how the Holy Spirit moved through this small group of people and how he grew them. And he also talks about various obstacles that presented themselves to the, the growth of the gospel and how they overcome them. Um, and kind of, I think one of, maybe, it's not really a thesis, but it's a, a good basis for how to think about Acts um, is this verse from chapter 1, verse 8. It's a little cut off there, but um, this is Jesus just before his ascension speaking to the 11 disciples. Um, and he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so, again, you get that sense of this Holy Spirit-driven movement of the church from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, so there's also a few things that Acts is not trying to accomplish. Luke is not writing an exhaustive history on the early church. He selectively takes pieces of the story and puts them before us because they're the pieces that tell his story the best. Um, he's like We know very little about the lives of the apostles. Like Where did they go? They didn't all stay in Jerusalem. Um, but we know that not from Acts, but more from, you know, church history and outside sources. Um, and, I mean, just, just towards that, you know, I read in a commentary that the first 11 chapters of Acts, which kind of seem like they're boom, 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 happening, actually last, I mean, that took place over 10, 15 years. So there are all sorts of details that we're not given. Um, it's also not a template for how to do church. And this one's a little tricky because we tend to think of Acts as kind of the ideal time in church history. It's in its infancy, its purest state. It's just, you know, post-Christ. Like, the Christ teachings were the most clear in the apostles' mind that perhaps they would ever be. So, and we also get beautiful pictures and descriptions of the church, um, which make it, make it tempting to want to say, well, this is how to do church. You know, we should do it exactly the way they did it. You know, let's, let's go back to that. Um, and in some cases, you know, Luke is giving us an ideal example. He is. And he's giving us a pattern. But it's, that's not his primary purpose. And you have, to, you have to tease that out by looking at other passages in the Scripture and by looking at the consistency between descriptions. Sorry, this is a little technical. We'll get, <laughs> get into deeper stuff in a second. But... Um, so how does this passage fit the purpose of Acts? This is the second question. Like, how does it fit in that overall story of movement and growth? Um, and to, to get a sense of where we're sitting in Acts, I want to you know, take a brief snapshot of what has happened in Acts and then a little brief preview of what's about to happen. Because we'll see we're at a turning point in the book of Acts in this passage. Um, so in Acts chapter 1, we, you know, we see that verse that we've already read. Um, Jesus 
you know, reminds his disciples what they're to be about. They're, you know, going to be empowered with the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Um, and then he ascends. And then the disciples who are down one disciple to, you know, because of Judas betraying Christ and then committing suicide, choose another disciple to replace him. Um, in Acts chapter 2, we see the fulfillment of the promise. Um, the Holy Spirit is... You know, comes on the disciples as they're gathered in an upper room during the time of Pentecost, which was a, a large Jewish festival that drew people from all over the known world at that time. Um, and they eventually get out of this upper room and they start speaking. And they're speaking in all sorts of different languages that people from those crowds knew. Um, and, you know, it, there's an, you know, an overwhelming response to that. 3,000 people come to Christ that day through this sermon. And, this, and it's drawn from these peoples from all over. And at the end of that chapter, we get this, one of these, you know, I think one of the, the passages that makes us want to go back to Acts and be like the early church. Um, you know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. It's just a beautiful picture of this diverse group of people that were brought together. And had everything in common. And the church, you know, grows dramatically. Um, Next, chapter 3 and 4, you know, we kind of see more of maybe the normative life of the the early church as they're going about, you know, to the temple. Peter and John come upon this uh, lame beggar who they've seen many times before, no doubt. And, but this time the Holy Spirit moves in them and they want, you know, they realize that God wants to heal this individual. And they heal him, and he jumps up, starts walking around, telling everybody what God did. And then everyone goes back to Peter and says, how did you do this? And he launches into a sermon. Um, and, you know, the religious leaders of that day, the same ones who had arranged for Jesus to be killed, get wind of Peter preaching and this healing and the fact that they did it in Jesus' name. And so they, they bring Peter and John before the council, and they, they give them a warning. They say, don't preach anymore. And it's kind of a implied or else. Um, and then, so the, the believers realize that this, this outside threat, this, you know, this threat of persecution from the religious leaders, and they pray for boldness. And then we get another one of these reminders of this, you know, this unity of the early church. Um, at the end of chapter 4, you know, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And so we, our passage today talks about a distribution. I think this is kind of probably what it's referring to, this kind of collective resources that were then you know, dispersed among the people that had need. Um, but again, this you know, the early church we get this sense of this common, um, this common focus, this common, you know, sharing different pieces of life and even sharing their resources with one another. Um, in Acts chapter 5, this is probably the first drama in the church, but um, maybe not the first, at least the first big drama. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, as part of that, you know, kind of that process where people are selling things, they sell some land and then pretend to give all the money to the pot, but only give part of the money. And the Holy Spirit says, I don't want people to lie. And he kills them on the spot. 
Um, and I think their story is just a good reminder that as the Holy Spirit moves and as the church grows, that not everyone is going to be all in. Like, I think John Piper has this phrase, like, every movement picks up debris. And kind of like a, a river, like a, a clear mountain stream that flows down a mountainside and across, you know, the, across the country and out to the sea. You know, by the time it gets to the sea, it probably is pretty muddy and has lots of dirt in it. And it's still water. There's still a lot of water in there, probably more than when it started. Um, but it's harder to tell, you know, the water from the dirt. Um, and, you know, it, the Holy Spirit, you know, not only um, kills Ananias and Sapphira, but then does, performs many signs and wonders. People are healed. Um, and again, the apostles draw the attention of this religious leadership. Um, they're arrested. They're thrown in the public prison. Then they're freed by God. They go home. The next day, the religious council says, well, we'd like to see you anyway. Um, and so they, they come before the council, and the council says, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And I think, it, I think Eric brought this up, but um, this idea that, you know, this may be the first foreshadowing that the Jerusalem time of the church is nearing an end. Jerusalem has been filled. It's time to start spreading the gospel elsewhere. Um, that's not that guy's point, but it's a foreshadowing. Um, and then, you know, there's a speech by Gamaliel, the the leader of the council, and he basically says, if this is of God, we're not going to be able to stop it anyway. And if it's not of God, it'll die out because we've already killed Jesus. And so it'll die out like these other movements. Um, and Eric, you know, kind of teased out whether that was good theology or bad theology. I won't get into that. He did a good job. Um, but the bottom line is they're, they're kind of like, okay, we won't do anything to him. Um, except we'll beat them, and then we'll send them out. Um, we won't kill them. Um, and so the, the last verses of that chapter says, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. I think this is just another evidence of kind of the otherworldly nature um, of God's people. Like, this is not something that we typically think of being happy about or rejoicing. These guys were just, you know, beaten, and now they step out, and they're rejoicing about that. And it kind of harkens back to the, the Beatitudes where Jesus says, you know, happy are those who will be persecuted in my name. Um, all right, so moving on to six, we have this kind of seven chosen to serve story, um, which we're going to talk about more today, but... And then immediately after, the church goes into this time of intense persecution. Um, Stephen, one of the seven, um, is seized. He delivers this uh, great sermon of a history of the, the Israel people. Um, and then he's killed. He becomes the first martyr. Um, and then the persecution intensifies and the early church is scattered. You know, the, Stephen is, is killed in chapter 7, the first verse in chapter 8. Um, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the nations of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I don't think it's a mistake that he's mentioning Judea and Samaria. He's showing this stepwise progression of the gospel. Um, 
And then Philip, another one of the seven, is one who leads this gospel spread. Um, he's mentioned a few different places in Judea and Samaria um, as preaching to different people. Um, and so our passage stands at kind of the, the turning point um, in Acts. And I, I think that's relevant to how we, how we should read it. Um, we'll get into that in a little bit. But let's just walk through the passage real quick. Um, so the first verse, Now in these days when the apostles were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Does anyone want to venture a guess who the Hellenists were? Or does anyone know? Is that... What's that? Yeah, so they were... Yeah, Hellenists, like... If, yeah, it implies Greek. They were Greek-speaking Jews. Um, they were descendants of people that... Of Jewish people that had been exiled in various points in Jewish history and had been spread across the known world. Um, and oftentimes they returned back to Jerusalem either to worship or to live permanently. And a lot of times at the end of their lives, they would come back um, because they wanted to, to die in, you know, in the promised land. Um, and so they, they had a separate translation of the Bible. They had separate synagogues um, you know, to allow them to worship more comfortably. And so this is, this is kind of a cultural divide. Even though most of them are still Jewish, there's a cultural, there's a language divide here. Um, and they had picked up... Um, various aspects of the cultures they had come from and brought them back. Um, and so the Hellenists and the Hebrews had come together under Christ, but now we see that in this daily distribution um, that some of the widows for the Hellenists were being neglected. Um, and the daily distribution, um, again, I think if you go back to Acts chapter 4, you get a sense of what this is. It's that common pot that you know, people who had more than they needed were selling land and houses and whatnot, and they were giving money um, to the disciples, and the disciples would disperse it to the people who had need. Um, we don't know much about this. There's some, there's some instructions from Paul to Timothy later on about distributing um, money into the money among church members and how to give it to people who really have need, and um, and Paul's. Paul's descriptions are aimed at people who don't have family to support them. Um, you know, widows are often an example. And there's, Paul differentiates between true widows and widows. Um, and just this idea that the widows that Paul wanted to give to, and again, I don't know if this was happening in, the early, in this stage of the early church, but were people who didn't have their own kids right there to take care of them. Um, and so, you know, what is being threatened here? Um, does anyone have any thoughts about what, what's being threatened here? You've got two groups of people. They've got a disagreement. They're trying to be one. <laughs> unity. Yes. Good answer. Um, yeah, so the unity of the church. And this is the first time I, I think we see a threat to the unity. So far, it's been these kind of very glowing reports of how how unified the church is, even though it's diverse, even though it lives in intense proximity to one another, um, even though it's sharing everything in common. This is the, the first time where I think we get a picture of, I think, you know, a, a realistic reminder that there's still people. 
And they, they've got, they come in with all this baggage of their own and their own opinions, their own preferences. And you know, sometimes people get ignored. Um, verses 2 through 4. Um, and the 12 summoned the full, this is the 12 apostles, the full number of disciples. They brought in the whole church. And they said, it is not right that we, the apostles, should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Does that bother anyone? That statement? It does? Why does it bother you? Yeah. It kind of does, doesn't it? Anyone? Oh, sorry. Um, so Anna said, Anna said, um, it kind of makes, it bothers her because it kind of makes it sound like serving tables isn't of value. Yeah, I think it's in John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet and he says, you know, I'm doing this for you. You need to do this for the people. You need to do this for the people that you lead. And there's several paces in Mark and Matthew where he talks about whoever wants to, to be a leader must be the servant of all. We'll just let that sit for a second. Um, so, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Um, so they, they don't ignore that they, they still want it to happen. Um, but they, they want other, other people to take up this thing. And the, the reasoning is that we need to vote, to vote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I think when I read this probably the first ten times, I just read, devote ourselves to the ministry of the word. And I've, I overlooked prayer. And I wonder if anyone in here has ever asked, has ever turned down an opportunity to serve because they said, well, actually, I was going to spend that time in prayer. I haven't. I've never done that. And that's probably why I read over it. Um, but, I th- yeah, I think there's a... Ve- like, they value prayer more than I do. And I, I think, you know, you see that earlier um, in even those, you know, those glowing descriptions. You know, they're, they're devoting themselves to prayer is one of the things that they devote themselves to as a group, as a church. Um, and, I, yeah, I don't want us to miss that. I think it's valuable. Um, and I think we need to yeah, really think about, are we, are we giving, is our prayer time kind of something that we add on, you know, to our schedule, wherever it fits? Is it something that we do just on the way to work, you know, while we're driving in the car or, um, you know, with whatever, whatever scrap time you have during your day? Is that, is that what prayer time is for you? Or is it something that you devote yourself to? Um, and then, you know, also devoting themselves to the ministry of the word. Um, so, I, so if you'll notice, like the, the apostles don't res- really respond to, it seems they don't really respond directly to this accusation of like, Hey, our widows are being ignored. It's the disciples kind of treat it as it, uh, assume it's true. They, you know, they say, okay, that's fine. Um, well, we need to find a solution, but it can't be us that's, that, that is the solution this time. It can't be us that's the solution this time. Um, and what, I just kind of open this up again. What threat do you think the apostles are perceiving here? 
This might be a read-my-mind kind of thing. But, um, I mean, their response, you know, they're, they're afraid that there's... Sorry, Shayla? Yeah, so Shayla is saying that, you know, if they were to, to back off preaching, to kind of make sure the distribution thing went well, that that would take them away from what they were being called to do. And I think if you, you know, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 8, and, you know, Christ is commanding them to be witnesses. And witnesses doesn't just mean a verbal thing. It's also a lifestyle thing. But there is an essential verbal component to it that can't be sacrificed. Um, So I think Shayla's spot on. I think they're afraid that, you know, if they're the ones that take this on, that that will... um, that that is a threat to the mission of the church. That's a threat to this, to the church's you know desire to be witnesses. Um, yes, we'll leave it at that for now. Um, let's see. And so, the next few verses and what they said pleased the whole gathering. Again, the whole church is there. Um, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Um, These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Um, So the first question I have in this passage is, who are these men? Um, I don't know much about Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, but I'm told that these are all Greek names. And that these, were, these men were all drawn from that Hellenist group. Which is interesting because the whole church was voting on who, you know, who was going to handle the distribution. And so, yeah, so they're, they're recognizing leadership. They're affirming it. They're affirming that these people are full of, good, you know, full of the Holy Spirit and of good repute. And they are... You know, placing them in leadership positions. Um, and then, you know, what role do they serve? Does that, can anyone think of a, a parallel to what these guys are doing that we see in churches today? Like a title for a, a position in a church. Yeah, like a board of deacons. Um, we were at a church the other day that had probably 10 or 15 different hospitality ministries. And... But deacons is the one I was thinking of um, when I saw this. And I think that's, this is, people who are teaching on deacons, you know, not that that happens that often, but um, often refer back to this passage as maybe the first time deacon, you know, the role of deacon came up. But this doesn't mention deacon specifically. Um, Again, I don't, like, I think that the fact that it doesn't mention deacons is more, more grounds for saying that Luke's purpose wasn't to show you how to build a church. Um, he was just showing how it happened. Eric? Yeah, so Eric's pointing out that the word proselyte indicates that this guy Nicholas wasn't even a Jew by birth. Like, so not only are they they're acknowledging um, Jewish Greek-speaking people, but they're also acknowledging a non-Jewish person that has, you know, converted first to the Jewish faith and now to the Christian faith, um, 
which is, yeah, which is a huge, huge deal. This is the first time we really get a sense of Gentiles being brought into the fold. Ethan? Um, I think we can infer that, I, but I don't know. I didn't see any like, specific numbers um, about... Sorry, Ethan was saying, you know, is there any indication that the Hellenists were a minority group within the early church as compared to the Jewish-speaking? Is that what you were saying? I was saying a majority. Oh, a majority at this point. Um, I would, so he's saying actually the opposite of what I just said, um, <laughs> were the Hellenists a majority, um, and the, the Jewish speaking were a minority and maybe that's why they got all the votes. Um, I, from, from the, you know, the commentaries I read and I didn't see any indication about, um, numbers, like specific numbers or percentages, um, it seemed the tone of what was said was kind of these were more of a minority initially. Um, the Hellenists were more of a minority. Um, and, you know, as we see them kind of being installed, you know, we see this kind of picture of the apostles, being, you know, they're laying their hands on them and they're praying for them. Um, I think, I just point that out because often if, if you use a passage like this as more of a, a prescriptive element, you might say, well, every time we install deacons, we have to lay our hands on them and pray for them. And that's not what this is saying. I mean, it's saying what happened, but it's saying, it's not offering us a template um, necessarily. All right. So the, the final verse um, Verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Um, I, I think in, in the past, um, you know, when I heard people, you know, missionaries or campus leaders come in and talk about numbers of people that were converted, like it, it kind of annoyed me or rubbed me the wrong way. I was like, that's not the point, you know. It's more that we're being faithful to the gospel. And, but Luke obviously likes mentioning numbers. Um, he does it a lot. He, there's probably at least 10 times where he mentions kind of this increase in the church. And part of that's, part of that's because, it's, because, again, it acts as a story of growth. It's a story of movement. But I think it's also a way of encouraging um, the church. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, I think it's good, it's good to know that God is moving and moving powerfully in the world around you. And yes, everyone that is counted in these numbers, there may be, there may be some debris in that, but that's, that's God's prerogative. And I think it's, I think it's Luke models for us that it's okay to, to encourage people by mentioning this ongoing growth of the church. And I think he also uses it here in, um, in a way to kind of affirm the process that they, that they just went through, that there was this, this th- these threats to the unity and to the mission of the church, that the church came together, you know, they, they came together and came up with a solution, and God blessed that. Um, and I think it's interesting, this is one of the, 
maybe the only time he mentions that a great many of the priests also came. And I've, I just, this is kind of a, an aside, but I think it's interesting that he does it here. Um, you know, they just have been seen by the priests and, or the religious leaders of that day, and they've said, okay, we'll not kill them now. But the very next story is the first person that gets, the first person is, you know, that's martyred, that's killed for his faith. And so I wonder if this is kind of the last straw. Like, before this, they hadn't had many inroads into the religious leadership, but now God is blessing them even more. They're starting to make inroads, and now the religious leadership is like, this is too close. We've got to do something about this, or we're going to be totally undone. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's the case. That's just a, a thought. Um, so what's the point of this passage? Um, when I read this, I, I, you know, initially, you know, prior to, to studying for this, I would have said, well, this is, this is the first time deacons are set up. Like, this is kind of, you know, I, I was totally down that road. I'd be like, you know, this is kind of telling us how to do it, um, telling us why it's a good thing. But, I, you know, as I, as I read, I don't, I don't think that's the main point at all. And the main point's maybe a little disappointing. Like, it's, it's an introduction to some really important characters in the next stage of the church. Um, it's an introduction to Stephen and to Philip and kind of this, this the spread of the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Um, that's not the only point, but I think that is the main point. I think that's why he includes this story here with these specific characters, because he's giving us a sense that, you know, we're, we're moving into this next phase. Um, but I also think, I think another point is that, you know, again, all of these threats had been coming from outside the church so far. You know, it was an us versus them kind of thing. But Luke is also saying that, well, not all the, not all the threats came from outside. Off, there were threats that came from inside. Um, and they weren't threats from, from people that had any bad intent for the body. But they could have, they could have undone the church quite easily if they hadn't been handled properly um, or hadn't had the Holy Spirit's blessing. Um, and so, you know, we saw the threat to the body, to the unity of the body, dividing along these kind of cultural lines, and a threat to the mission of the church, you know, sacrificing one part of the gospel for the other, focusing, in this case, on physical needs over maybe this, you know, this evangelistic and prayer um, component. Um, and we, I think this, you know, these threats are very much alive in today's church. They're alive in our church. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of what I want to talk to about a little bit more, kind of bring it home for us. Um, it's just a sense of, like, dealing with drama in the church, dealing with threats that arise from within. Um, I think we can learn some stuff from their, from their story. Um, you know, the Hellenists voiced their complaints to the Hebrews. You know, there's a right way and a wrong way to voice complaints. You know, Philippians talks about do everything without complaining and grumbling. So we get a sense that maybe not all complaining is good. Um, but, you know, in, in the Bible, you know, if there's an issue, whether it be sin or whether it just be kind of a grudge that you're holding against someone because they said something funny to you or ignored you or whatever, that you go to that person and you talk to them. You don't go to your best friend and their best friend and you don't get on Facebook you go to that person and you, t- and you say, here, you know, here's how I'm seeing the situation. just want to know, like, do you have any thoughts on it? Like, you know, do you see sin here? Um, and, yeah, so the first thing I think that we can learn is 
they voiced their complaints. We don't know exactly how they did it, if they did it right or wrong, but we know that they voiced them, and we know from other passages in Scripture what right and wrong looks like. Um, and, you know, the Hebrews, they didn't argue, the, specifically the disciples or the apostles didn't argue the validity of the complaint. Um, it doesn't mean that all complaints are valid and that every time you have a complaint that you're going to be right and no one's going to argue with you about it. But, um, but when there is a valid complaint, the disciples were open to correction. They said, yeah, we need to find a solution to this. Um, and then everybody came together. And I think this is probably one of the more interesting parts of this story to me. Like, the first, the first thing that people tend to do when an issue comes up is to separate. And, it, like, I mean, yeah, if you have a problem with me, like, you're not going to want to talk to me. You're going to want to stay away from me. Or if you, you know, have a problem, even in friendships, like, you'll, t- you'll at least take some time apart and maybe you'll come back together. But, um, but the first tendency as humans, as fallen humans, is to separate when issues come up. And the disciples said, no, we're going to come together. We're going we're gonna to talk about this as, as a family, as a covenant community. Um, and then they listened to the apostles. You know, they, Hebrews uh, 10, 24 through 25, you know, says, you know, encourages us to stay involved in the body and be a part of the process and not to separate out, um, even though that is our tendency. Um, and the problem was interpreted in light of the church's purpose. Um, you know, the apostles, when they considered the issue, it wasn't that it was wrong to serve. Like we have the path, that great passage that Garrett reminded us of, um, of Christ washing people's, washing his disciples' feet and telling them to do likewise. Like the apostles were servants. They knew they were to serve. They knew that in the kingdom of God, you know, that that leaders serve and that the you know the the last will be first. Um, but they also knew that their mission was to be witnesses to the ends of the earth, and that that didn't mean not serving, but it meant that they needed to be devoted to prayer and to you know preaching God's word. And so we see. Yeah, that them kind of interpreting this problem in light of that, they came up with a solution that allowed for that to still happen. And I think that's important to note as we consider issues that come up in our church, like that there is, there is overriding commands that we, that we need to pay attention to as we're trying to meet these, um, these smaller issues. And then leaders were commissioned from within the Hellenists. We kind of talked about this before, but... I mean, this is, I think, the first time where we start to see some specialization within the body, some people, like, using gifts. And um, later on, Paul t- talks a lot more about, you know, different spiritual gifts within the body and how to use those and to maximize the good and the unity of the body. And I think this is the first time, maybe it's an issue of size or capacity, but um, that brings it out. But this is the first time where we see the church kind of, at least explicitly, dividing up responsibilities that doesn't mean that you know again the apostles didn't stop serving people but that wasn't their primary function um and we find out very soon that it doesn't mean that these hellenist leaders didn't preach you know stephen preaches in the next in the next chapter um philip preaches in the chapter after that so it's not it didn't limit these people but it started to provide some some structure within the church um, 
and a way to exercise different gifts. Um, and then, um, what is also maybe a hard thing for us to swallow is believers submitted to the apostles' decision. And it wasn't a submit like, gee, I guess we'll go along with that. No, they were happy. They celebrated this, this decision. And they were in agreement. They, you know, it's the kind of thing that if they didn't have coffee shops back then, but if they went to the coffee shop after that, that meeting, they'd be like, man, that, you know, that went well. Like, I think I'm excited about where our church is headed. Like, I think the... I think the apostles did well here. It's not like, I mean, they weren't equivocal about it. Like, eh, we'll wait and see. Um, or I didn't really like the way they handled that. I can't believe that they don't want to wait tables, that they think preaching is better. Um, but they kind of rallied behind the leadership of the church, um, which is something that I, I don't think that maybe we naturally do in our church today. We're very focused on like, individuals and kind of preferences and you know if we don't like what people are doing we'll just leave um and that's not not the picture we get here we get a picture of people coming together of people fighting for the unity of the church um and so sorry we will wrap up soon but i just came up with a few obstacles to unity what i what i think may be standing in the way of of our church of churches in general in america um, I mean, I, for the record, I love being a part of this body. I think we do a tremendous job of fighting for unity within this body. Um, but we do see a, a fair number of people come and go, I think, because we don't have, um, as a, as a, a, an American church, um, or we don't have a sense of the importance of the unity of the church. Like, at this point in history, there was one church. You know, it, we have, I don't know, hundreds, I would think hundreds of denominations at this point in America, maybe not, maybe just dozens, but, but I mean, we're a, we're a splintered church, we're a fractured church, and because of that, we can, you know, we can go to whatever church has, you know, the best children's ministry in our eyes, or the best coffee and bagels, or the best preaching, or the best worship music, and we kind of, that's how we decide what church to go to, and we don't fight for unity you know, if if someone, you know, doesn't invite us over to their barbecue and, you know, we were put off by that, we'll just go to the next church. You know, if if the pastor doesn't come up and shake our hand, you know, when it's our first time at the church, we'll go to the next one. If, if their music isn't the same music that you grew up with, you know, just find another church, right? Um, so so I, th- I think it's important to talk about some of these some of these obstacles. Because we see them every day, we don't recognize them often. Um, but I think the first obstacle is just kind of an apathy to mission. Um, and, it's, and, and, and this is one, of, which one that I think is, is pretty synonymous with idolatry. Um, we, we say, yeah, we love God, but we also love our families, and some of us love our jobs. And, you know, we love, you know, football or golf or... Um, the World Cup. Um, and, you know, we kind of let those things become the most important thing. Or maybe we put them at least on priority with God. Like, yes, I will, I'll seek out a church after I found the right job. Or, you know, after I found the perfect school to get into. Then I'll worry about if it's a place that I can grow as a Christian. Um, 
And, or I want my family to be safe, so I'm going to find the safest community that I can afford to be in, and then I will move there, and then I will hope that there's a good church family there, and then I will try to connect with that church family. And so our priorities practically are oftentimes, you know, not in the right order, um, which I think speaks actually to our priorities in our head too. Um, it's not just, not just something that happens, you know, inadvertently. It's something that is, is built in us as, you know, as we're pursuing God, whether we're putting him first or whether he's kind of getting, again, the scraps. Um, and then there's a misunderstanding of our mission, um, which I would kind of equate to bad theology. Um, and this is more like, okay, you, you know, you've put God first, but it's part of God. It's, it's the preaching of God, or it's the prayer, or it's the service. And you kind of go down whatever road that you're most closely wired towards. You know, if you're not very outgoing, but you love to do things with your hands, you might be like a Shane Claiborne and start a church in the inner city and just serve people and give out all sorts of food and, you know, be that distribution part of, you know, picture of the early church. But then kind of shy away from the gospel and not really want to preach the gospel when, it, you know, the chance comes up. Because, honestly, the gospel is the part that people don't want more often. I mean, they'll take your food. Um, but they often don't want to take it with God on the side. Um, or maybe, maybe you don't like to serve people, and you'd rather just tell them that, you'd rather tell them about heaven, about hell. You'd rather go through the four spiritual laws, um, because that's, you know, that's what's more comfortable. You'd rather not, you know, knock on doors, go right down the line, and then call it a day. Um, and that's, that's just part of the gospel, too. Like, Jesus came, and he, he had compassion for both physical and spiritual needs. And we need to model that kind of wholeness as individuals and as a church. Um, I mean, yeah, there's other, other aspects of bad theology, but I think those are the kind of the big ones that are dealt with this, this passage. Um, and then there's apathy for the body of Christ. And I think this one, this one's, uh, I think this one's a hard one. Um, this is just kind of coming to grips with our selfishness as people. Um, that, you know, when we, when we see commands in Scripture to love others as ourselves um, or to put others in front of ourselves, um, to, pour, to be poured out as sacrifices for others, like, it sounds good on paper, but I still need some me time. I still need my vacations. I still need, you know, my big TV so I can watch. Um, you know, I can spend all Saturday watching football. Or maybe this weekend it's the U.S. Open or the World Cup. Um, or, you know, I, you know whatever, whatever your, your draw is, um, you know, whether, maybe it's fighting for recognition in the church, having your opinions heard. Um, maybe that's what you're fighting for. Um, yeah, I think I think those are the, or the, the preferences for for music style or for preaching style or whatever it is. Like those things can come in between us and God, which is, I mean, to me it seems at least on paper ridiculous. I know it happens in my life, but um, but to allow kind of these these small pieces of life to not not necessarily get between us and God, but get between us engaging in His people, which maybe is the same thing. Um, since the body of Christ is his kind of visible presence on earth right now. Um, we let those things kind of pull us one way or another when they have, really have nothing to do with the gospel and really have nothing to do with 
why we're here. You know, they have nothing to do with us being one body that goes out and makes disciples of all nations. Um, yeah, so I encourage you to, to go back through this passage to kind of think about, you know, the way they dealt with drama, how scripture talks about dealing with different issues, and, and to ask yourself, you know, am I allowing, am I allowing things between, to get in the way of me really fighting for unity as a, as a church as a whole, you know, on a worldwide or national or local scale. Um, and what, a, you know, what keeps me from, in many cases, like really plugging into a church, you know, whether you stay at the, stay at the same church and just stay on the surface of it and don't get involved in its kind of inner workings, or whether you're kind of a church hopper, you know, you like to try churches out, you spend a few weeks here until the bagels aren't good, and then you go to the next church. Um, you know, where, where do you kind of fit in that? Um, where do I fit in that? And just, I think, pray through this. I mean, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal, um, reveal to you where, where there's more work to be done, um, where he wants to do some proof. Um, because a lot of these things are things that come right to mind. Um, they're going to be things that, you know, we need some Holy Spirit um, discernment on.